Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we're going to hear from Perry Rosenblum, who sold his web development company for $17.5 million. But before we get there, if you want to learn the deal terms and how this deal was structured by the acquiring company, I have shared a link over in the show notes section at builttosell.com, along with an article that Perry referred back to when negotiating the sale of his business that he found helpful, written by David Cohen. So again, you can find both of those in the show notes section at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Perry, who started a web development company, Brighter Vision, specifically aimed at helping therapists. Now, if you can believe it, he built this business up to thousands of customers and millions in revenue. But what I want you to look out for when listening to today's episode is how exactly he implemented a recurring revenue model for his service company, how he avoided hiring the wrong employees for his business, how he developed leaders from within, and how he utilized an effective negotiation tactic to increase the price of his business. Here to share with you the full story is Perry Rosenblum. Enjoy. Perry Rosenblum, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me, John. Excited to be here. So company was called Brighter Vision. Describe it for me. Yeah, so Brighter Vision did website design for therapists uh, at its core. Uh, we, we built some software that enabled us to take it from you know, custom websites to more of a productized type service, as well as built some SaaS tools to do marketing automation for therapists. Uh, and at its core, though, we were a web design company utilizing technology to enable us to build at our peak. We were doing between 300 and 400 websites a month. How did you pick therapists as a target segment? <laughs> in two ways. Uh, so first, my mother-in-law is a therapist. And when I was starting or, or struggling in my business in the earlier days and, and doing web design for anyone, I started talking to my mother-in-law. I'm like, hey, I'll build you a website. And I ended up building her a website. And while researching... Uh, you know, various therapist websites. I came across this company called Therapy Sites, uh, which was the the big behemoth in the industry at the time. And I saw that they were charging like 60 bucks a month for a website, which was, uh, you know, pretty unheard of then. And, but, you know, they had a large base of customers. And so basically I said, hey, I can do a better job than they are. And I pulled a list of their customers, started calling them and the rest is history. What did you find when you called their customers? Because the last thing, I mean, when I think about changing out a website provider, in particular a website host, it's like changing your bank account. The last thing in the world I want to do is that because I want to avoid disruption and it's just the plumbing of my business. I don't really want to touch it. How did you overcome that objection when selling to <laughs> that market segment? Great question. So the... When we were really fortunate to be entering the market at the right time, it was before most people had mobile responsive websites. A lot of people had them, but not the entire market. And so I'd call them. I'd be like, hey, I can, I'll custom build you a website. I'll charge you $60 a month and it will be mobile responsive. And that was kind of the, the key difference that enabled us to get like just this tiniest bit of traction and get our foot in the door and begin selling to this market and convince people that it was worth it to switch over their website to a new provider. How'd you get the customer list? It's not like companies like publicize all their customers. <laughs> uh, so what I did at the time was I looked up their name servers and they had all their websites pointing to the same name servers and just kind of got the list that way. You, you could you could buy a list of, of websites that are pointing to specific name servers and then outsource that list and got contact information and emails and just started dialing for dollars. Uh, it, was, it was at a time when my back was pretty much up against the wall. My business was not doing as well as I had liked. Uh, and it was like, all right, it's time to make or break it. I either need to start succeeding here or I need to go get a job again and start supporting my family 
by making some money. So uh, and that's how that, that so, kind of all so the business you were the business you were you had before was a kind of generic web development shop. A generic and web the, development the and SEO you, company. Yeah. Mm. Very generic. Did websites or search engine optimization for anybody and everyone. And then by kind of like refocusing on a specific niche and going after a recurring revenue model, we never had to keep fishing for a bigger fish uh, every single few months to get a new contract. And we're able to build a sustainable revenue model and kind of just go from there. Wow, this sounds like one of those like you know like before and after sort of <laughs> movies where you know before they were you know not attractive, overweight, and then they take a magic pill, and then all of a sudden they're you know like like is it, was it that easy? Was it just oh, the, God, the, no. <laughs> the process of of focusing on one market segment, therapists? Uh, I can see how that would be a wise strategy, but it it sounds like. It was almost the domino that that tricked, you know, triggered an entire sequence. Was it was it that easy? Am I am I getting like was it that profound? I guess a decision to focus on therapists. I, I wouldn't say it was a profound decision to focus on therapists. I think it was just a lot of luck uh, <laughs> that we ended up doing that. Um, but you know, it, you sell ten websites in a month at sixty bucks a month. You're getting six hundred dollars in a month. So it's not like you're suddenly able to get that overnight success. It's still just like with any kind of you know, recurring revenue model, you're investing a lot upfront for the payoff down the road. And so at the time, you know, I, I was fortunate. I had a kind of like a side hustle of affiliate marketing, I had a, a network of websites that were providing enough revenue that I was able to invest in growing the base of therapists and base revenue in that business. Uh, through the revenue from a different company uh, that kind of eventually the therapist revenue outpaced everything else and it just kind of let that other company go by the wayside and focus on just you know building out this therapist uh, website business model and you know, we, we didn't have a product we were selling at the time <laughs> you know there there was there was no real website there were no themes there was no technology behind it it was hey if you pay me 60 bucks a month I'll build you a website and eventually, you know, we, we ended up building the technology and building our themes and making it so that we can do, instead of doing 20 or 30 websites a month, we're able to do 100, 150 websites a month and then able to do two to 300 and then three to 400. But, you know, in the early days, there was no technology, there was no product. There was just me calling, trying to, to drum up business uh, and, and, you know, build a business. It's interesting because when I talk to people who pick a niche um, one of the most common things I hear is that it worked in the beginning, but then I got tempted by wandering outside of my niche. Did did you ever get tempted to to start going beyond the, the niche of therapists as you grew? In the early days, we also focused on coaches, and that did not work, and so we kind of like threw that by the wayside and focused on therapists from like, I don't know, 2014 or so all the way through till, you know, going into 2020, we had a plan that, okay, Hey, you know, we were at, uh, we had a sustainable business. We were at 30, 35 employees. Uh, we were a dominant player in the market. And our plan was to begin expanding at that point into new markets. Uh, but that was once we had built a, a really solid business underneath us and we're a dominant player in the nation. We had a, a great plan to go into 2020 of moving into new markets and then COVID hit and kind of threw that all by the wayside. I want to get there before I do though, I just want to understand a little bit more about how you finance the growth. So in the beginning, it was affiliate. You had this kind of side hustle that was allowing you to kind of pay the bills. Uh, did did you at, at some point raise money or or bring on investors of any sort? What was that like? Everything was self-funded in the early years until about, I think it was 2016 or 2017. So the first like two to three years, it was all self-funded. Uh, it got to the point that every single dollar that came into the business was focused on marketing and focused on hiring resources. Uh, and then it was sometime in 2016, 2017, we brought on an investor 
who happened to be my former boss, uh, ironically enough. And uh, he came in and invested a, a small amount of capital in the business to help us build out some of our software offerings and work to transition from... How much did he invest and, and, and what, how much equity did you give him for that? He invested about $200,000 and I think it was a, I think it was 6% or 8% equity, somewhere in that range. Okay. Okay. Uh, so a pretty rich valuation. And, and roughly <laughs> where we, yeah, where were you at at that point in terms of recurring revenue? I'd say we were roughly, I'd say somewhere in the 800,000 to 1.2 million range. I, I really don't recall. It was somewhere in that range though. Yeah. So you, I'm just trying to do the back of the napkin math and I'm not great at math. So I'm, it, it sounds like you were valuing the business at two or three times recurring revenue. Would that be accurate? That, that would be somewhat accurate. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, I probably would have been better off and from a pure financial perspective, just getting a loan. Uh, I was pretty naive in terms of what I could get. Um, but we weren't, you know, we weren't a venture investable business. And at the same time that, you know, we also were not profitable enough or had kinds of assets that we could really get a legitimate loan to, to help us. And so we were kind of between a rock and a hard place there. We wanted to invest in the business. So, you know, we gave up a decent amount of equity, but overall, uh, from, the investment and the advisor from our investor, it, it paid itself off. Uh, very nice. And who's the we? Are, are you the sole shareholder? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, in it, or? I, it was just me. I was a sole shareholder until bringing on the investor. And plus, plus my employees. Got it. Okay. By the time we were acquired, our employees owned, I think, somewhere between 8 and 9% of the company. That's helpful for sure. So you have this vision to build out uh, a new product was it a new no it was a new social media platform or what was the the, the purpose behind the investment yeah so it was, at that at that time we we had really scaled up some of our offerings and and improved upon our technology from the website building perspective and wanted to build out a you know, speaking with a lot of our customers we found out what their biggest pain points were and it was related to social media marketing and we did a lot of uh, customer research and product development research and came up with a pretty solid idea. And we just didn't have the capital to be able to hire somebody, whether it was someone in-house or, a, a, or outsource it to a development shop. And so wanted to raise the capital to build out this tool that uh, thought would help take the business to the next level and, and help take, become more of a, a national true SaaS company as opposed to a productized service company. What do you see as the difference between those two things? The productized service company is going to require more labor to deliver the actual product. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're more of a true SaaS company, you know, you're, you're operating from, you, you'll have a CS team and a support team, but you're not actually in terms of, you know, creating the product that you're delivering to somebody, you're not needing to recreate it and invest the labor into that. And so your margins just improve dramatically. And what else was behind the desire to be a SaaS company or be viewed as a SaaS company and not a productized service company? I, I think more than anything, well, for one, valuations. Uh, you know, SaaS companies certainly get more better valuations, but it, that really wasn't how I was viewing it at the time. I was viewing it more of, there's a business opportunity here. There's a product that our customers want. If I invest X over time, that will hopefully pay off 10X for us uh, or whatever that multiple ends up being from, from a revenue perspective. And it just was clear that there was a, a missing solution in the market for our customers. And we knew our customers really well. We had a few thousand customers at that point. So we understood like, hey, we have a, we have a network and a market to sell to. Let's just build out this new product. I understand what they want. Let's build it out and then we can start selling it. Uh, so it wasn't so much a, I want to transition from productized service to SaaS. It was more of a, we have product A, which is websites. Let's develop product B, which is going to be a social media automation platform. And what happened next? Well, raise the funding uh, and struggle to hire an engineer to actually in-house to build it out 
for for the company and so ended up outsourcing it to to a shop here in Boulder <laughs> and it was just terrible uh, I, I learned a ton uh, from pro- from product development perspective but I mean it was eight months of absolute of one of the worst professional experiences in my life uh, you know the the product did not work well. It ended up being so that that full few hundred thousand we invested all got thrown out the window, essentially. Um, by the end of it, hired somebody internally. They took it over, ended up hiring another engineer internally, and they they took it to that next level for us. And, you know, we, we took what the team had, what the outsource team had built, kind of got rid of almost all of it. Uh, there were a few a few holes in it that were, were pretty substantial from both a... From, from a variety of perspectives and we, we ended up needing to toss out entirely rebuilt it internally and once we launched it it crushed it uh it, it did really well you know all the research we did did really well and was effective but we needed it just took us a long time to get the product to market a little longer than we had hoped and it resulted in you know a few hundred thousand dollars of capital that kind of went down the drain but learned a lot from it and grew a lot from it and our team got a lot stronger from it overall. So, and the investment that you you took, it didn't have strings attached to it. It was straight line equity investment in the company. So they, whether the product was a huge success or a huge failure, that it wasn't their investment wasn't somehow contingent on the success of this product. It was no. just an investment in your company overall. Correct. Got it. What'd you learn from the experience? And what, like, if you had somebody who was thinking about outsourcing a technology project to a third party, what's the big learning? The biggest learning I would have is that you know, I, I had, we'd outsourced another product to a, a company as well uh, over in Ukraine, and, and that went really well. And so you're like, okay, well, this one's going to be a little more complicated. Let's bring it stateside, and, and that will work because it will be better to speak with people in person. And I, I mean. I don't think that's true anymore. Um, but in terms of the biggest learning, it would have been helpful to have somebody in-house with the technical expertise to manage it, as opposed to myself and, a, and an in-house product designer managing it. We needed somebody who could actually be on top of reviewing their code and managing the code base from them to make it successful. It certainly could have been successful if we had that management. Um, I, I'd say another learning would be just if you think something's not going right and you have an opportunity to get out, I'd get out. There was there were multiple opportunities where it was clear that the product, you know, three months in, it was not going as we had intended. We had only invested at that point, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars. We could have gotten out and saved ourselves a lot of head- so I could have gotten out and saved myself a lot of headaches and aggravations. Plus, my my product designer a lot of headaches and aggravations. Uh, but we did it, uh, and we kept going down that path. And so, you know, either I, I say the two biggest learnings are have somebody in house that can manage it from a technical expertise perspective, as well as trusting your gut as a business owner. You know, if if you should be getting out of something and versus continuing down a path, but it's it's hard once you already commit capital to, to cut those losses, right? And, and move on. Absolutely. Especially because entrepreneurial folklore is, you know, you never quit. Colonel Sanders had to sell his recipe like 6,000 times before he got a yes. I mean, we've all heard those stories. So it's so almost anathema to think about quitting. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's not necessarily quitting. I mean, we still would have right gone company. ahead with developing the product, but we just should have fired those contractors much sooner. And, you know, the... The, the saying of hire slow, fire fast, uh, it also applies to to big projects. And you know, we, we thought we made the right choice with this firm and it just clearly was not and should have gotten out while we while I had the opportunity to. And but you know, we ended up with a great product in the end. It just took a little longer to get there, right? <laughs> a little more money to get there. Yeah. Speaking about curveballs, I want to get into COVID and where you were at. So take us flash forward now to 2020, the beginning of 2020, January, February. So what state is the business at? You mean like roughly how many customers you've got, revenue, like whatever you're comfortable sharing? Uh, We were crushing it. January 2020 was our 
best month ever. Uh, January typically is. We'd always run a big sale. Uh, I think we sold close to 400 websites that month. Um, and you know, our average revenue per account had gone up dramatically. We were at somewhere, I believe, in the four to 5,000 customer range, I believe. Um, and growing really well. You know, we, we consistently were growing between 60 and 75% a year and had a really wow. great so what, what kind of t- what kind of top line revenue are you comfortable sharing where you were at top line from in January? Uh, I don't think I can. Um, okay. But you know, we we, we in were in terms of customer base. You had thousands, thousands, yes, tens of thousands at this point. Not not tens of thousands. No, we never hit that. Hit tens of thousands, but but many thousands. Um, many thousands. Okay, that's super helpful and. It does beg the question, like, how many therapists are out there? <laughs> like, I'm like, maybe uh, I need to understand this market a little better. But like, you're selling hundreds of these things a month. Like, at some point, did you worry about reaching a point of diminishing returns? Like, we've already sold every therapist we the, the top. Like, how many are out there? There, there's a lot, um, and and you know, the market's grown even more since then, or at least the need for therapists has grown even more since then. Uh, but there, there's a ton of therapists out there and there's a lot of practice management tools out there. And so you know, as we were kind of in like mid 2019 to the end of 2019, early 2020, it was, okay, do, I kind of felt like we had two decisions we could make. Uh, we were in the process of investing in our website platform that would allow us to really scale out the production of our websites in a very, very dramatic way while, while without without needing to raise our uh, headcount to deliver the same number of goods. So we could go from, for argument's sake, you know, 50 websites per month per designer to up to 120 websites per month per designer. Those numbers aren't accurate, but it kind of gives you the range of, of how we were thinking. Operationally, we were really smooth, hired a, promoted a lot of people internally. We always had to hire very new folk, uh, very early in their career kind of people because we just didn't have the money to, to go out and hire more senior people. And they kind of grew with us over time and, and we all grew over time and matured into good, solid leadership roles. And so operationally, we were really solid. We were kind of faced with the decision of, do we build out kind of like a practice management solution and continue selling more to our existing market? Uh, or do we take the product we've created and begin focusing on new markets. And going into 2020, the decision was made is we're going to go and start focusing into new markets um, with our website mm. platform, adjacent, adjacent-ish markets. So we started experimenting with ad buys for dentists, experimenting for ad buys for physical therapists, um, similar in like the health market. Um, and... Uh, we were and chiropractic was another one we were looking at. So we're experimenting with these ad buys, understanding what it's going to cost us to acquire a lead, experimenting with developing websites for them and selling them, and seeing how which one would work best fit with our business model and or acquisition models. And then COVID hit, and just kind of like buckled down and said, "All right, we're not going to go out and start spending all this extra capital that we had planned on. Our marketing budget, we're shrinking it down. We're going to solely stay focused on therapists. We're not going to do any more product development. You know, we had no idea March, 2020, what was going to happen in the world. It was a a pretty scary time. And so it was like, all right, we need to conserve cash. We need to build out models for what we're going to do if we start seeing immense churn. And within the first like two, three weeks of the world shutting down, our, our churn started spiking. And we, we said, all right, hey, every single person here who's, who's requesting to churn and wanting to churn, just say, we're going to give you two months free. Like, hey, let's just ride this out together. We'll give you a few months free and let's see where the world is at in one month, two months, three months. And you know, one month later, the, the Fed started pumping a lot of money into the, into the world. Um, the, the world was still scary, but not as scary. Uh, as March, early to mid-March 2020, and we started growing in an explosive way. Um, all of the, still with therapists, all the therapists that you know were going to churn, our churn went dramatically down. 
And then a lot of therapists who were at home and didn't really have an internet presence and didn't feel the need to invest in their internet presence said, okay, I need to start investing in my internet presence here. And so our demand spiked and um, just kind of went from there and said, we're not going to focus on any other markets. We're going to just continue focusing on therapists, investing in the products we have, investing in the people we have. And it, it paid off and um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you ask another question from here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I want to get to how it paid off, specifically the sale of the business. Before I do, though, I, I find it fascinating that you reached this fork, fork in the road where you had very clearly two potential growth strategies. One being cross-sell new product, i.e. practice management, to your existing customers, of which you had an existing install base. And the second potential strategy being go find new niche adjacent markets, other health practitioners and so forth. I'd love to get inside your head and inside your boardroom to, to understand what made you decide to go after new markets and not cross sell. What was your decision making criteria? We were really good at what we were doing. Um, so if, if we were to invest in a practice management solution, it would have required uh, a lot more capital. It would have required more engineering resources. Uh, you know, we only had at that time two engineers and they were fantastic. Um, but, you know, we, it would have added a lot more compliance risk to us as a business versus we're doing something nobody else in the world is doing. We're building three, 400 websites in a single month that are, really, really customized websites and with very happy customers. You know, our, our, our logo churn rate was less than 2% uh, in, in an SMB market. Per month, per year? Per month um, in an SMB market. So, you know, a lot of people are, are focused on SMBs. You're seeing much more like a 4 to 6% churn uh, per month. So we, we felt our churn was really good. We felt we were delivering a, a really excellent product, really, really happy customers. So yes, we could have sold into those customers potentially more easily, but we felt that by going after adjacent markets where we could recognize similar opportunities in those adjacent markets, similar trends and similar advertising methods that we could utilize, we'd be able to keep our CAC at a relatively similar level um, while being able to sell into Define a product, CAC. Uh, customer acquisition costs. Um while being able to, to, so the same, we'd be spending the same amount of dollars to, to acquire customers while selling into a product we already had uh, and a product that we knew how to deliver in a, a very scalable way. So take me through the next few months. Business starts to stabilize in the spring of 2020 and then starts to grow dramatically. What what was the trigger that that caused you to sell the business? Was there some sort of straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, that triggered it? You know, the, the outreach from the acquirer. <laughs> um, the, the acquirer uh, is a public company uh, called EverCommerce. Um, I've actually known the founder for for years. Just we were introduced as, as he was building up EverCommerce. And so we we kept in touch through through the years, once every six months or so, having a phone call, keeping him updated on how we were doing and, and what we were we, we had going on. And you know they were a very acquisitive company. And in late spring 2020, M and A kind of dried up for a lot of, for for that brief period of time. Start picking up again towards like Q3 2020, uh, but like late Q2 2020, everything kind of dried up. And he reached out, asked how we were doing, and we started having conversations and um, ended up, uh, you know, we had grown a lot since the last time we conversed and ended up getting an LOI and, and negotiated a bit and got to a happy outcome. So, and, and are you talking to him? Are you sharing? Sorry, let's put a name to this person. Yeah, yeah. Who was the CEO uh, at the time yeah. of Evercommerce? Eric Reamer is his name. Great guy. Okay. Got it. So, so Eric's talking to you, and 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 are you sharing kind of what what data are you sharing with him? Yeah, LOI. So know, just when you're chatting. Yeah, I, I always had the mindset of if 
a company or a PE firm wants to talk with me, I'll take a conversation because it's a world that I'm not exposed to. And so by that point in time, I had actually received like five LOIs over that period of time. None that I was anywhere. Well, one I considered taking early on. I'm really glad I didn't. Um, but you know, I, I'd always had these conversations and I'd understand how to have these discussions, what information to share. Uh, my advisor and investor, um, Pete Scheinbaum, he, he had been through acquisitions himself as well. And so he helped guide me through a lot of conversations and I, I end up getting pretty decent at how to have that conversation, how to have that dance and what to share versus what not to. And so what did you learn about the dance? Like what was the biggest difference between your first conversation early when you were just trying to fill out and, the, and, and then your conversations with Eric, like what did you share? What did you learn for folks who are going through this for the first time? They'd be curious. Great question. So I, let me think back. It's, it's been a while now. So I, I want to make sure I'm speaking fully accurately here. You want to get them to give you a number uh, or a ballpark range. And so I would share high level details like, hey, this is what our customer count is. This is where we're at. This is where we're growing. Um, based off of that, you know, I'm a busy person. You're a busy person. Based off of that, what's your ballpark range? You know, you don't need to get into an LOI, but what is your ballpark number? And, you know, they often push back on that. Um, well, you know, we want more data. We have more data. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not giving you more data. You know, like I, I need to know if we're at least in the same, in the same range here. And I wouldn't be specific on my numbers, like general ranges of, of what our customer count was, what our ARR was, um, and what our growth rate was. ARR stands for annual recurring uh, revenue. Yeah. Annual recurring revenue. And I, I need a ballpark range. Like if we're in that same range, cool. We can keep having a conversation. And so I'd get a ballpark range and be like, nope, sorry, that's that's not the range that we're looking for. Let's stay in touch uh, as we continue to grow. And so some of them, we, we'd get in the ballpark range, like that's interesting. Um, and then, you know, in, or instead of getting a ballpark range, they'd send over an LOI, especially some of these more aggressive PE firms that were trying to roll companies up. Um, and, you know, none of them, there, there was one offer that was pretty interesting at one point. Um, but turned it down and um, just working to get to, to a number in a ballpark range so we can understand if we are going to waste each, if we're wasting each other's time or not. Um, and so that's kind of like what I learned from, from that. And what was your number in those days in, in the kind of spring of 2020? Like, you know, what, what kind of ballpark were you looking for in terms of multiple on AR? I never really was looking for a, ballpark in terms of uh, multiple on ARR because everybody's going to judge things differently, right? Like they're going to, some people will discount your ARR of what you're saying. Some are, are going to look more at your growth rate. Uh, for me, there was always just kind of a number in my head of, yeah, I'd, I'd consider selling the business for this amount. And that number ended up growing over time. You know, when I'm early started starting out, it's like, oh yeah, 5 million. That's my number. Then it grew up to 10 million. Then eventually it, it ended up being at like a $15 million number. And, and my wife and I had lots of conversations of, you know, your number keeps growing. When, when is that number not going to grow if you get a, an offer in that range? Um, and, and so, you know, it had a ballpark number in my head of what, what I wanted for the business. And you know, I, I was really fortunate in that my, my investor, again, has, has sold multiple companies and, and helped guide me through the negotiation process uh, with the eventual acquirer, with Evercommerce in the end. And um, we, we got an LOI and negotiated a bit and got to a number that we all felt really good about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pete is the investor, the, the guy who gave you the couple hundred grand to mm-hmm. build out the social stuff? Yeah. What sort of advice did Pete give you in terms of having conversations with potential acquirers pre LOI? So we'd get to a number on the in a converse or or we'd have these conversations. And they wouldn't actually in the end. I'm going to just kind of speak to this final negotiation here. Um, you know, we never got to a number on the phone. They'd go and I'd give information. 
the high level information I wanted. I'd asked for a ballpark range. They didn't want to do that, but they said they'd go get, they'd talk to the board and get to me an LOI. And so we'd get an LOI. And anytime I got an LOI, especially in this case, I'd, I'd talk to Pete and I'd be like, hey, Pete, here's what it is. What do I do? Um, at the same time, I was also reading a, a, a <laughs> book called uh, Never Split the Difference, um, just out of pure mm-hmm. irony. I've heard about that a lot, Chris Voss. Yeah. yeah, phenomenal negotiation book. Uh, he was an FBI hostage negotiator. And so, you you know, Pete would help guide me through what they were going to say and then how I should respond and when I should let silence take over. Um, And I I literally would write down, I still have have the documents somewhere in like a Word doc. They are going to say this generally and then i'd write down shut up in big caps uh or i'd say something and then like shut up like don't say anything let them speak next and let them do most of the talking and you're listening and you know you're thankful and appreciative of of the conversation and how uh how much they value the business I think this could be a great partnership i'll have to you know talk with my investors and and, and mentors and and you know but if you want to get me a number, if we can kind of go from there, you know, I'm not looking to sell the business, but if we can get to, to a number that makes sense, maybe I, I'm, but again, I'm not looking to, we're growing really well, really appreciate what you guys are doing, but we're growing so well. I, I don't need to sell the business, not looking to. And so I'd, I'd write out like the entire script. We'd have these conversations and it would literally go almost to a T. And when we, we got first LOI, we negotiated a bit and got another one. And, and like Pete actually told me, okay, well, on this next call, here's how this is going to go. I'm like, all right, great. I, I have an idea of how it's going to go. And you're going to want to say, say this. And I don't remember what the exact language was, but when we had the call and I get back on the, the, the call went, okay. It was a little more, this the second negotiation uh, on the LOI it was a little more a little shorter uh, than the prior one was. And so I get Pete back on the phone. I tell him how it goes. He's like, oh, you played hardball. I didn't tell you to play hardball. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Um, and then, you know, my, my cell phone rings and, and it's the acquirer calling me back. And he's like, don't answer that phone. Do not answer that call. You're going to write them an email and you'll say, hey, got your voicemail. Busy all day. You know, just just create that time. Create that sense of, of uncertainty. Uh, because... During the LOI process, and this was a really great piece of advice he gave me, you are in control. And as soon as you sign that LOI, all of the control goes over to the acquirer uh, during due diligence. And so you want to you know, negotiate everything you can into the LOI. And so we negotiated a fair amount into the LOI, uh, various terms, um, in addition to just like, you know, the standard price, but, you know, various terms in, in terms of... Um, some rep and warranty kind of stuff, high level details of, of uh, liability and things of that nature. And um, really just, just be quiet and listen <laughs> and, and let them do the opposite of what I'm doing right now. Let them do most of the talking uh, while you're listening to them and, and create, you know, some time gaps in between your conversations. What was it that made the CEO call back? Like what was the, point on which you were quote playing hardball and why did he feel the need to call you back so soon after the meeting oh gosh you know we we got we like got a number um and i i said something to the effect of you know i really appreciate that i appreciate you guys back to your board but you know i i'm really at at this number which was much higher um is there anything that can be done to get us you know, to split the difference, <laughs> you know, you're never supposed to split the difference. Right. But it's like, okay, like I, I'm starting here, you're over there. I don't want to meet in the middle, but if we met in the middle, I'd be happier with that outcome. Uh, Cause you know, no one's going to, like, I'm not going to stick to my number. You're not going to stick to your number. Um, and you know, it was, it was a, it was a really nice offer. Uh, it was a generous offer for where we were as a company. Um, and after that call ended, uh, you know, he was able to call me back shortly thereafter to update what that offer would be. Uh, and 
we kind of like verbally agreed. It's like, yep, cool. That sounds good. Let's do this. Um, and then we got the LOI and, and ran out of ink while trying to sign the LOI. So I couldn't print it properly on like my uh, printer. Um, but uh, yeah, that's kind of how it, how it all went and what that conversation generally was like. That's super helpful. Go back to the list of things Pete told you to anticipate, the list of questions. Like, I'd love to know what other things were on the left-hand side of that piece of paper. So if I've got, they're going to say this, you do that. Gosh. So fill in the blank for me. Like, they're going to say, what sorts of things was Pete anticipating them saying? And what was he coaching you to do in response? Yeah. You know, at this point, it's almost three years ago. So, so my memory is a little off, but I'll, I'll do my best here. Um, one thing was about, about multiples and public valuations. Like I'd want to throw out, you know, about how public companies are valued based off of a multiple. And he, Pete said, you know, they're going to counter with something like, yeah, but those are larger companies. They have a larger scale. We can't value off of those multiples. And, and you know, you're going to try and, you know, obviously you're not going to be valued at a 20x ARR multiple as a company of your size. Uh, that's Pete saying this to me, but you want them to know that's where you're thinking um, and to work to frame the conversation around there. So if they're valuing you at, at X instead of 20x, how can you get to that 10x number? Um, the, the, the X, 20X, 10X, all, all arbitrary, but just kind of like working to frame that conversation um, in your favor and letting them know that of how you want to be thinking about this and getting them to see, to come to your perspective on how to think about it. Um, that, that, was, that was one that really stuck out in my head. Uh, another was, you know, when you, when you'd say something, like, like about how well you're doing and how fast you're growing and say something positive about how well you're doing. It's just like, after you say it, you don't need to frame a question, but after you say it, just be quiet. Like let them break the silence. Um, anytime there's silence on there and, and there were long silences, there would be like 15, 20 seconds of silence and just like, oh, we get disconnected. What's going on here? But, but let them break the silence and, um, you never commit to anything and just say, you know, thank you. Appreciate it. You know, this is really appreciate the the conversation, appreciate the faith in, in us as a team. Um, so that was on the LOI side and the conversation. One thing he did emphasize that you want to understand is, all right, now a lot's coming back to me here. <laughs> when you're, you're having these conversations, uh, you know, have the conversations around the numbers a little bit and then soften it. Like, let me understand, okay, hey, what's going to, Eric and I, you, you guys are best friends um, who are doing the negotiation, but let the attorneys or bankers get in the way here, let the best friends talk. What's going to happen on day one? You know, we, we, we talk about some numbers and then it's like, okay, well, well let's talk about what's going to happen when we integrate. So day zero looks like this or, or day one looks like this. What's going to happen on day two? Um, what's going to happen to our team? Who's going to be retained? And so... Talk about the softer things that can can build camaraderie and make it feel like you want this deal to happen in addition to just like the pure numbers. Talk about the pure numbers and then let things get softer and talk about day two. Let's, let's, how are we going to make this happen? What's, what's integration going to look like? Things of that nature uh, to, to help both the acquirer understand that you're interested in and also help you understand like, Hey, do you actually want to do this? Because day two really matters a lot. Um, are you going to own your P and L? Are you going to have to run every single credit card transaction through them? Like what, what's all that going to look like? I know we have to be a little bit careful around some of your numbers. So, you know, forgive me for asking, but maybe you can help me get there. What was the, the, the gap between the number you had in mind versus the original offer and you, and you said, look, can we, can we find a way to split the difference? Like was, was the number you had two X what they were offering five X what they were offering? Like, can you give me a sense of ballpark how much more your, you had in your head? It was less than two X. Um, but it was significant enough that, 
that looking back on it, and I remember like talking to my wife afterwards. She's like, you actually said that number? Like, what are you talking about? Um, and it, it all felt so, it, it felt kind of like a little bit of a game until it became real. Like, you know, we're locked in our house with COVID with two young kids. I hadn't seen my team in a long time at that point. Like, it, it was just all really surreal. Um and, you know, I can't speak to what that number was, but it was, it was a significant difference. You know, we, I was going off of what some of the largest, most successful publicly traded SaaS companies were valued at. And this was, you know, Q2 2020. So the, that March upward had, had started. Um, you know, we were in the depths of uh, March of 2020 at that point from, this, from a public valuation perspective. Uh, it wasn't as frothy as, you know, late 2020 or mid 2021. But it was it was climbing, right? Um, so those were the the benchmarks I was referencing towards. And when you threw out that number for the first time, how did you keep a straight face? Uh, <laughs> thankfully, it was uh, it was not a video conversation. It was on the phone, um, and I literally was just like biting my lip anytime I was not supposed to speak, and so I would just keep my teeth clenched into my lip so that I would not say anything until somebody else spoke. Uh, it, it was, it, it was a little surreal. That's for sure. Were you worried at all that they thought maybe you were, you know, you had a bad internet connection or you <laughs> no. joint before the actual <laughs> discussion? Like, were they kind of, you're in Colorado after that. I mean, were they kind of, were you worried at all that you were going to be perceived as being dim-witted or dull or not very smart if you were just so pregnant no. and these pauses just were so long? Were you worried about the implication of that? No, I, I wasn't. Uh, you know, it, Negotiations are, are a game, right? And they understood that. They had acquired a ton of companies at that point. I did feel a little silly that I was just like this this kid negotiating. Um, but I, I felt confident in my company's worth and, and what our, what we brought to the table, both from a product perspective and a revenue perspective. We, we filled an important uh, gap for them. Uh, in their offerings, um, I I also though was cognizant of the fact that excellent uh, acquisition offers don't come every day, uh, and so there was going to be a point where it was either going to be you need to accept this offer, this is the best and final, we're done dancing. Um, or not. I, I didn't think an offer was going to be pulled necessarily. It could have been, but there was no, nothing was contentious or, or angry or anything. It was just, just going to be quiet here and just not say anything uh, and, and let them do the talking next. Um, yeah. I mean, this is a peanut butter and chocolate kind of deal. It is a beautiful strategic partnership. So I, I'm going to encourage everybody go to build to sell.com. We will put in the show notes, the ever commerce uh, uh, like public company filing, I think it's called the 10K, or I can't remember what it, what the actual filing is, but it describes the deal. I think that the ultimate price was 17 and a half million, something around there, and you can confirm or deny, but I think that's what EverCommerce reported. But it it really, if you look at EverCommerce as a business, they have like three lines of business. They have software in the health practitioner space. I mean, they have the practice management software that you were thinking about building. And so to add on the websites, I mean, this was a strategic acquisition if you could ever yeah. conceive of one. And, and even more than that, like the, there's the practice management and then there's also, we wanted to still go into new markets. In order to go into new markets for us, um, you know, there there was around around the acquisition. I was also considering taking on a raising round of growth equity. We, we had some offers on the table there. I don't remember the details of it, but it would have allowed me to take some chips off the table. But you know, I, I was around like the I own like 86 percent of the company. Um, in order to get to that next level, would have required a significant investment and taking on a lot more risk that I just did not want to take on to get to that next level. And 
they have the distribution. They have like 400,000 SMBs uh, in their network that we can repurpose our product to work for all these different markets. And so that was something that was really inspiring to me and inspiring to the team when, when I eventually shared with the team that we were being acquired and, and what it meant for people and a lot of good career opportunities. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't worked for, for anybody else in, in a while and I wanted to learn what I needed to, what I was doing wrong, um, what I could do better, uh, how I can improve as a leader and as a business owner. So that way, if I were to do this again, I'd have that knowledge to be that much more effective and, and hopefully successful. How did the valuation, I realize it's been some time, but how did the valuation that the growth equity option placed on the company differ from the outright acquisition? What I've heard in the past is that you know, taking on growth equity, you can often get a higher overall valuation for the company because you're not selling 100% of it and you're staying on and, and continuing to control the majority of the shares. Was that the case in your example where the growth equity placed a higher valuation on the company than the actual outright acquisition? Yes. And that would have been to my downfall as well, potentially, because they had preferred, they would have taken on preferred shares, preferred equity in the company, which meant I had to hit a much bigger exit in order to really walk away with a similar amount of, of money um, for myself and my team. Unpack that for me. What, what is, you explain why. Did, yeah. So maybe you haven't experienced that before. Um, you, you know, let's just say, I, I think they probably would have valued us at say 25 million for, for argument's sake. Um, and let's say I would have been able to take, you know, 10% of that off the table, for example. So I would have gotten a check for about two and a half million. And I, I don't remember, these aren't the, the exact numbers, just kind of working through the, the math of that. Um, but then they would have expected to, you know, let's say they're investing seven and a half million, two and a half is coming to me so that they're investing five million in the company. They'd expect to get, you know, a preferred equity, meaning if there's an, an acquisition event, they're going to get paid out first up to, you know, let's say it's a 2x preferred equity or preferred uh, liquidation event. I, I don't know the exact language of that. So that means they would have to, you know, they, they'd get 10 million at the very minimum, even if we sold for 15 million down the road. And, and, you know, today valuations have come back down pretty dramatically. So if we were to sell for, let's just say $20 million today, they're going to get their 10 million no matter what. And that leaves 10 million left for everybody else, uh, including them. Um, and so the, the, the range of outcomes would have gone down pretty substantially um, and, and made it much harder for me and my team and my investor to uh, walk away with the kind of uh, returns that we, we ended up seeing. Fantastic. Thanks for that. A good explanation of, you know, a viable option for a lot of folks who want to take a few chips off the table. It's different than a majority recapitalization when you're selling more than half your company. Growth equity usually refers to selling less than half. And, and, uh, but it does come with these, um, hooks and, and caveats and, yeah. and fine print that can undermine some of the value. You know, if we were earlier in our, in our, our growth, that could have made sense. But at that point it didn't, it didn't, um, especially with an offer on the table. So. Yeah. Yeah. And a, and a lucrative one at that. Are you open to a little lightning round of questions before I let you go? Yeah, man, let's do it. All right. Slimiest trick a potential acquirer played on you in the process of trying to buy your business? Oh, gosh, you know, I don't know if we ever had... Okay, yeah, we did have a slimy trick. So um, there was a PE firm that contacted us and said they're doing a roll-up and you know, there's going to be a recap in 30 days, recapitalization. So you need to, if you're going to sell, we need to get a decision today and we need you in today because that's going to improve the recap. So you'll walk away with, you know, X today, but in, a, in the recap we're doing in 30 days, which is going to happen, it's going to happen this recap, you're going to get 3X there. So you're actually going to be walking away with 4X of what you expect. Uh, and so that that was a 
challenging one to to fully wrap my head around and turn down. It's not like this was a, a fly by night PE firm either. Um, a pretty big one, um, but yeah, that that didn't feel too good. <laughs> like literally pressuring me to sign an LOI. Did you ultimately? Oh, what's that? Did you ultimately come to learn it was a bit of an underhanded trick? Meaning, did they actually come through with the new valuation? There was a recap about six months later, um, not not thirty days later. It, it just felt like a very heavy-handed move to get me to sign on a Friday night at 7 p.m., you know, hard to get in touch with attorneys. You don't need attorneys to review an LOI. Come on, let's just do this thing. We want to get you in for this recap. Yeah, we have your best intentions in mind. And, you know, it, again, it was helpful. I, I spoke with every every PE firm that came in, I'd speak with um, just to, to get a sense of what's going on, how they're valuing us and, and work to sharpen my skills uh, in, in discussing my business with folks. What was the biggest mistake you made in the process of selling your company? You know, I there's so many of them. <laughs> None that are too substantial. Uh, I, I guess I'll kind of just give a, an overarching kind of lesson that I learned maybe is that all deals die twice. It, it, Pete told me that as well. <laughs> um, and it... it definitely happened uh, along the way. It definitely felt like the deal was going to be dead two times. Um, and it, it it was it did not die, uh, obviously, but it certainly came close to. Uh, I don't know how close it came to, but it certainly felt like it was going to. So I, I wouldn't say that was a necessarily a mistake, but just you know, emotions run so high through that whole time and that whole process. Um, and you know you, you have to be willing to to be able to walk away, despite thinking that and dreaming of what you're going to be doing once the business sells. Uh, you can't let yourself get too far ahead of that. You have to be willing to, to say no. This is this is bad. I'm I'm going to walk away, or be be willing to put yourself in that position uh, to walk away if you have to. What caused the business the deal almost to fall apart? I, I just don't know how much I can actually share on that. Um, yeah, no problem. We'll move on. Cool. Thanks. What was the lowest point? Yeah, no. What was the lowest point you reached emotionally during the process of selling your company? <laughs> I, I remember this very specifically. So, you know, it's summer of 2020. COVID's doing its thing. Um, and my we, we do an annual camping trip with with two good families, uh, friends. And my wife went up the day before I couldn't go up, uh, on a Thursday. I, you know, I was working, you know, from 5.00 AM to 8.00 PM every day at that point through due diligence. And so my wife goes up on the Thursday and, and things are getting really stressful. It felt like the deal was going to die. And I'm driving up Friday to the campground and waiting a call for my attorney um, where I was expecting him to tell me the deal is, is dead. Um, and I'm just driving up by myself and my dog's in the passenger seat next to me and she throws up <laughs> and she throws up all over me. And at that exact moment, the oh. phone call comes in from my attorney <laughs> and, uh, I, I answer the call. I'm just like, Matt, I got dog throw up all over me. What do you got? We're dead, aren't we? He's like, no, actually, we're not. Everything's all good. Here are the details. I'm like, oh my god, sweet. <laughs> it, uh, it made the throw up on me feel a little bit better. And so, you know, I, I pull up to the campground, and, and my wife's at that point. She knows what's going on, expecting the deal to be dead, and like just looks at me and gives a thumbs up, thumbs down. And I'm just like, thumbs up. <laughs> um, and so, you know. Both a, one of the highest and one of the lowest uh, moments through the process. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. As you prepared for your exit, it sounds like you relied a lot on Pete, uh, your investor slash uh, advisor. What else did you do? You also, in your own admission, talked to a lot of private equity groups uh, to get sort of educated about this. But was there anything else that you read? You mentioned Chris Voss's book. Was there a course, a conference that you attended? Uh, 
a speaker, anything that you could point our listeners to that would be helpful for them? Yeah. So I can follow up with you about this. Here we go. Um, one of the the best articles I ever wrote or ever read about this was written by David Cohen. Um, it's from June 18th, 2010, uh, titled, You Have Acquisition Interest, Now What? Um, and he actually goes through the whole asking for ballpark offer uh, stage um, and how to get to that. And so that article was one of the the best pieces of advice and articles I had ever read on that early stage um, process. Um, another thing I'd say of, of just good advice of, for founders who are selling is get a therapist. <laughs> um, you, you know, uh, that's actually one of the first things I did after selling my company was, was just get a therapist to start speaking with because, you know, so much of my identity and, and who I was and, um, was, was tied up in the business and it's really helpful to have somebody to speak with, uh, about that. That's, you know, there's only so much of a burden you can put on your family, right? Um, to, to have someone outside to, to speak with about that was really helpful for me. That's interesting. Great suggestion. First time I've heard it. We will link up to the David Cohen article in the show notes at built to sell. Dot com. Last question. Tell me you bought yourself some trophy. Sounds like your wife was chief cheerleader in the background. What What did you buy for your family, your wife, yeah. for yourself? Give me a trophy to commemorate this uh, win. Absolutely. So so first, uh, you know, it's not lost on me uh, the irony of the dude who built a company working with therapists is the first guy who suggested that uh, or a person to suggest that you should speak with a therapist when selling your company. Um, but in terms of the trophy, uh, you know, my... Both my family and my wife's family have always lived far away. Uh, my wife's family in, in Florida and Georgia, and my family in New York, they eventually moved to Arizona. And we had this idea of why don't we just buy a condo, buy an apartment in the city and have it be like a family place. And so you know, we, we live in Boulder, Colorado. Denver is about 25, 30 minutes away. And so we bought a really cool loft uh, in downtown Denver that my in-laws stay at uh, four to five months a year. My parents come and stay at you know one to two months a year, and it's it's been really really wonderful to uh, allow my my children uh, and my wife and I, of course, but really our children to you know get to spend that really close quality time with their grandparents. They were typically it was all right. We're traveling out. We'll see you for a week, and then we'll see you again in a few months. And it's just. You know, it's it's really done wonders from a from a mental health and enjoyment of life perspective for us. That's an awesome gift to yourself and your family. What a great uh, what a great example and and super tangible and real. And every time you go there, you can commemorate the commemorate the win. So amazing, Perry. What are you up to now? Give me give me a little bit of. Uh, um, an overview of Motion.io. We were talking offline yeah. about this new company. So uh, I spent a year working for EverCommerce and then took uh, what we called a gap year. And you know, a few months into that "quote unquote" gap year, uh, started speaking with some friends and um, ended up starting a new company with both uh, my third employee that I hired at Brighter Vision uh, and a good friend of mine who built a company in parallel to mine. And so the three of us started Motion.io, and it's uh, project management software uh, for client-based projects. Uh, we found that project management tools, what we've learned, really work well internally. But as soon as you invite a client into a project management tool, it all falls apart. And so we're building a tool to, to help you manage your clients more, manage your projects with clients more successfully, focusing you know to start off with on designers so cool. and going from there. That's so cool. So Motion.io. Mm -hmm. is the company name and presumably the website as well. Exactly, yeah. And we're- uh, We'll link yeah. up to it in the show notes to build the sell as well. Awesome, thanks, John. Appreciate that. And Perry, if people want to reach out to you, is there is there a good spot on social or where, where should people reach out to you if they want to uh, say hi on social media? Yeah, LinkedIn would be, would be the best place for me. Uh, I'm not really active anywhere else, uh, but I am on LinkedIn. And so, you know, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd, I'd love to connect and- uh, hopefully you found some, some value out of this interview and, and my experience here. And, uh, it's great to be on with you, John. I've been listening for a long time now. 
That's that's really good of you to say, Perry. And and we'll connect up to Perry's um, LinkedIn profile in the show notes of Built to Sell Radio, so you can grab them at builttosell.com. Perry, thanks for doing this. My pleasure, John. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation between John and Perry. If you did, be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you love today's episode, then share this episode out with a friend or colleague. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including that article I mentioned at the beginning of the show, go ahead and visit the show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, there you'll have the opportunity to either nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the podcast with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labatagula for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.